Hello, Aisha here, and welcome back to the Weekly Economics Podcast. We've been away for a bit, and I hope you'll be pleased to hear we'll be back with a brand new series in the new year. But in the meantime, I wanted to bring you something a bit different. You might remember that over the summer, we ran an episode about populism, asking what it is and what it isn't, and whether it's even a useful label. This week, I'm bringing you the best bits from a live event I hosted in London in November, asking whether populism can be progressive, and looking at the part it played in the US midterms. My guests were the political theorist Chantal Mouffe, who literally wrote the book on progressive populism, and the American campaigner Jonathan Schmucker, author of Hegemony How To, A Roadmap for Radicals. Amazing. Um, so we're going to start off with uh, some kind of opening statements, remarks um, from both of our panellists um, and then get into a bit more of a conversation. So uh, who is starting? I think it's me. It's you. Yeah. Okay. Hey, everyone. I want to talk a little bit in this opening about kind of landing some of the concepts from my book and uh, from thinking about the populist moment in the organizing work that I've been part of in Pennsylvania for the past two years. So I was raised rural, working class, uh, very religious, very conservative um, in outside of a little town called Burden Hand in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Um, so I'm not really the like um, traditional like suspect uh, or usual suspect for like who would land and spend their life like submerged in the left. But that happened when I was in high school and it was kind of random, kind of a series of accidents. Um, uh, specifically, it was racism at my high school that politicized me, and then just some questions about the economy that got me reading some articles from like New Internationalist and Multinational Monitor. Um, but by the time I was 18 years old, I was pretty fully submerged in activist subculture in the mid-90s in the United States. Uh, I was part of a lot of different um, kind of activist scenes and then movements like the Global Justice Movement. and. I really found a home in those places, but something really bothered me at the same time, and that was how we seemed to be talking to ourselves and this problem of insularity within uh, the activist left. Um, and that led me to uh, found uh, Beyond the Choir. Uh, it's a play on words in, in the US. We say preaching to the choir, um, talking to ourselves. Um, and fast forward, after the election happened in 2016, I had moved back to Lancaster, and uh, a few of us uh, decided to call for an emergency community meeting. And out of that was born this organization called Lancaster Stands Up. I want to talk a little bit about what we've done that has broken us out of that kind of insularity um, in order to form a popular mass vehicle in an area of the country that most progressives uh, have thought you can't play in, you can't win in, you can't build in, it's lost. Um, Trump won our district by 26 points. Um, so um, we now have, in two years, built an organization that has over 900 dues-paying members. We've organized demonstrations with thousands of people, like the four biggest demonstrations, at least in the past 50 years, um, maybe ever, um, in this area. And we have played a role in supporting uh, one of the most dynamic congressional campaigns, probably the strongest field operation of any House race in uh, the United States last year. Unfortunately, we fell short. We didn't win, but just came for Congress. Um, and we, uh, Lancaster Stands Up, ourselves knocked almost 50,000 doors. The King campaign itself knocked 200,000 doors. 
how do we do this? One thing, and it hurts my heart to say this, having spent more than two decades in the left, but one of the biggest factors was there wasn't a left before we started in Lancaster. And um, that's like heavy for me to hold. That like one of the biggest factors is because there wasn't a left with all its baggage, with all its special vocabulary, with all of its kind of culture of insularity to hold us back. We could invent something new and we could use language that was familiar to people. Some of the choices are really basic, but they were important. Us calling it Lancaster Stands Up, putting the name of the county and the city into the name and making a vehicle that just seemed like a popular response to a crisis moment, the 2016 elections, and us securing city council chambers for our meeting, calling it a town hall meeting. I would estimate that more than three quarters of our base, which is now thousands of people, was not involved in activism, in politics in any way besides maybe voting, some of them not even that, prior to the 2016 election. And it was using phrases like Lancaster values, Lancaster values healthcare for all, Lancaster values welcoming our immigrant sisters and brothers. And you know, you could critique that as that's ambiguous, Lancaster values, the right could claim it, Lancaster values, and the right does claim, claim Lancaster values, we're claiming it too. You could critique it as Lancaster doesn't value those things. Uh, Lancaster's conservative and there's xenophobia and there's all these problems. But we're contesting what Lancaster means, who Lancaster is, what its future is. We're contesting the popular symbols. We frame a big we, we use familiar language. Um, and I think uh, another uh, thing I really wanna point out what we do is um, we, we bridge between inside politics and outside politics. Um, and so I don't know how it is here, but in the United States, uh, there has been a tremendous chasm, especially over the past 40 years, between like activism and social movements and capital P politics. Um, and that chasm is only benefiting the people in power, in, in my opinion. Um, and something tremendous happened after the election where it just became intuitive to our new base that like that distinction between inside and outside made no sense. We were going to have to, uh, you know, hold our elected officials accountable by raising our voices, by gathering in the town square, uh, by occupying his office, et cetera. And we were also going to have to do something about the elections and who was in power. Um, and so that was really, really important. And the final one, and this was really, really key, is um, we picked an open fight with the leadership of the Democratic Party. And that's not burn it all down, blow it all up, right? Because in our system of government, third parties do not work. Uh, we don't have a parliamentary proportional representational system. Um, we actually have to contest power in relationship to the Democratic Party. But that doesn't mean for a minute that we're not critiquing and kind of opening an outright insurgency against the current leadership of the Democratic Party. And that's how we were able to gain such a big base that included people who were Republican, people who were independent, people who uh, weren't voting. Um, and we brought the people who identified with the Democratic Party along with us. Um, so there's a lot more that I could point out about how we do this. But I think one of the biggest things that gets us stuck is we, uh, in the left broadly, is we don't make a distinction between our analysis and a narrative strategy, 
right? A public facing narrative and our, our analysis. Because when you're, when you're crafting a political strategy, conversations within your leadership, precision is very, very important to understand the economic factors, the political factors, et cetera. But when you're trying to build a popular front and a popular movement, ambiguity is your best friend. And we actually have to get comfortable with that and embrace it. Using phrases like Lancaster values, well, you could say, well, you're watering things down. What we have to recognize is that the process of building power is a pedagogical process. You can't download your analysis into a base, right? Like the banking model of education, right? People form their own analysis through a pedagogical process, through unfolding events and how a leadership responds to those unfolding events and the kind of containers that we build um, over time. And that's what we've embraced and that's why we play with ambiguity because our base is forming an analysis um, over time. Um, and uh, I'll leave it at that for now. Thank you, Jonathan. Lovely. Um, so there was obviously millions of things uh, in there that, that I want to revisit, um, but something that jumped out for me was the, uh, the conversation around the construction of the we. Um, and when you talk, Chantal, about um, progressive populism, that's something that's really central to that, the idea of the, of the intentional construction of a we. Um, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and lots <coughs> of other things, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good evening. Um, so, yeah... Uh, I, what I want to show is that, in fact, the strategy that uh, Jonathan was uh, putting in practice in what he told you about his experience is uh, a populist strategy. And by the way, he's, he agrees with that. Huh? It's not me putting the, those things on, on, on the end. Uh, a specific type of uh, populist, uh, which you know, some people call progressive populism. I call that left populism. I mean, there is a whole discussion about, you know, should we still use the term left or not? But we agree on the fact that it's basically, you know, a certain type of pro pop populism that different progressive values, uh, um, values which represent basically, you know, the the, the axiological level was the, the the left is for uh, social justice, popular sovereignty. Okay, so I want to say uh, something about more as a philosopher about what is this, this strategy. F first, you need to abandon absolutely every idea you might have about uh, populism understood by you know the the, the, the media. Maybe the media say populism. Uh, well, yeah, that's demagogy. That's in fact today there is some kind of inflation of the term populism because. Uh, everything that, you know, the consensus at the center, the dominant neoliberal hegemonic consensus uh, feel threatened their uh, uh, dominance is called populist. You know, if you are critical of the European Union, you are a populist. If you have got, say, well, may maybe immigration can cause problem, populist. You know, every everything is populist. I, I think we need to be aware of the fact that this is a very clear strategy of, of you know, the, the, the people in power in order to disqualify and to stigmatize all those being left or right who criticize the situation. In fact, populism today is used as some kind of a term, is, is the two, they say one, one kind of coin, you know, which is one side, which is the right populism, the other one is left populism, but basically it's the same anti-democratic uh, uh, coin. And I think that definitively we need to abandon that. Uh, the, the view of populism that I'm defending is completely different from that. What, when I speak of populism, I speak of 
discursive strategy of construction of a political frontier. Here I start from the uh, conception of politics that politics is necessarily partisan. You know, politics consists in establishing a frontier between uh, the uh, us, uh, we, and, and the day. I mean, I know that uh, in, in general people react very much, ah, no, we and they, so it's civil war, it's uh, Europe. No, 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 it depends uh, uh, the way in which the we and the they are, are constructed. That's very important. But in any case, you know, politics is not, oh, are we going to all get together in agreement because one needs to recognize that they are antagonists in societies, they are relations of power. So the question, you know, is not simply to uh, say, like uh, Tony Blair used to say, we are no all middle class, so we should all be able to agree. You know, no, they are uh, very important uh, contradiction in societies, and this we need to recognize that, and we need to f democratic politics is a way to establish what I call an agonistic struggle in which, you know, the, the op opponents are not going to treat themselves as enemies. Uh, but what I call adversaries, people who know that you know they've got a relation of power which are at stake, but who are going to respect the right of the opponent to um, fight for their view. But in any case, in the case of populism, it's recognition that politics is partisan and need to establish a frontier you know, between uh, the us and, and the them. Uh, so I insist, it's not a regime. For instance, it does not make sense to speak of a populist government. Populism is not a regime, it's not an ideology, it's not something which you know, is limited to a specific kind of institution, it's, it's basically a construction of a frontier. That frontier can be constructed in different ways. I mean, of course, liberalism does not construct any frontier. You know, say, uh, <clears throat> there are no relation of power, only interest that can be you know, reconciled through uh, some kind of aggregation. Marxism does construct a frontier, but Marxism constructs a frontier between the proletariat and, and the bourgeoisie. Uh, populism <coughs> constructs the frontier in a different way, between the people from uh, uh, below and the people from above. Let's put that in terms of the, the people uh, against the establishment. You know? So in fact, it is something that is a much wider, much more transversal uh, uh, view of how you construct, because if you speak only the working class, again, the bourgeoisie, you leave aside a series of other groups and other demands which cannot just be reduced to that contradiction. I'm not saying that there is no contradiction between the, 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 the no class struggle, let's call it like that, but not everything can be reduced to a class struggle. You know, they are, it's a much wider uh, thing. So this is the, uh, the, the main point I want to make. Poly uh, uh, it's both construction of a frontier, and in fact, in what, uh, um, Jonathan was saying the way they pick a fight with the, with the, the democratic establishment, you know, so you need to, to have an adversary in politics. The whole question is how you are going to construct your adversary and how you are going to construct the we. Now that's central and this is where you can distinguish between right populism and left populism. Because right wing populism is going to construct the, the, the us, the, the, the we, we in a way which, of course, usually uh, leave aside, you know, the immigrants uh, is usually constructed in some kind of xenophobic way. Uh, why left populism, of course, need to have a much more inclusive an understanding of the we, and in the case of the left populism, the them, the adversaries, are, of course, not going to be seen as the immigrants, uh, but is going to be seen in, in the, by the transnational corporation, the H for financial capitalism, you know, this, this is the, the main difference between uh, the way in which the 
people and the dam is constructed in a, a, a left a progressive uh, populism. I, in my book, I argue that we are today witnessing what I call a populist moment, a specific conjuncture in which we are seeing a series of resistances to what has become, I mean, we still call our societies democratic, but in fact, we are living in a post-democratic situation. And of course, this is a consequence of 30 years of neoliberal hegemony, uh, which has created this post-democratic uh, situation. So th this is why the citizens are deprived of the possibility of having a voice. The indignados in Spain, for instance, were saying, we've got a vote, but we don't have a voice. And of course, they were right, because if you are going to vote, and basically it's between Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, you don't have a voice, you know? So this is, uh, I think we are saying to the series of resistances against the, 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 this, which indicate the, a crisis of neoliberal hegemony. And what is important at the moment is to realize that those resistances can be expressed in many different ways. They can be expressed in ways which are going to make our societies much more authoritarian, but it's also the possibility to an opening to a more democratic society, uh, a chance for a breaking with neoliberal hegemony and to construct a different hegemony that's going to allow for what I call a radicalization of democracy. The people to which we refer is not an empirical reference, it's not the population. You know, people is always a political construction. And it can be, for that reason, it can be constructed in, dif in different ways. It's true that you need to have some form of symbol, symbolization of the unity of, of the, the will. A leader uh, uh, can be that, and, but of course, you know, a leader does not need to be authoritarian. It can be what is called a primus inter pares. You know, and so the criticism that is usually done to populism that is all, always authoritarian is a wrong criticism because they don't understand you know, the role of the leader in a populist movement. Thank you, Chantal. Okay, so one of the many things that came up for me there that I wanted to ask you about, Jonathan, was it, it certainly sounds like in this particular, uh, in this construction of a, of a left populism, there's a lot of potentialities or kind of opportunities which for me sound quite intersectional, which arguably don't exist on the right. You know, you can, in a successful left populist project, you can have the unification uh, the successful mobilization and unification of race, of class, of gender, of all these other things. Um, and it seems, at least from this side of the pond, that there's some been, been some really exciting mobilization in that vein around the recent midterms in the <coughs> States, not, not only with um, Ocasio-Cortez, but other people as well. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that idea that if we have a successful left populism, um, it can be intersectional and inclusive in, in ways that can win. You know, the, the, the big differences between a reactionary populism and a progressive inclus inclusionary populism uh, are who is the they? Um, you know, is it punching up at concentrated economic power, for example, or punching down at mm. immigrants, people of color, whatever, you know, pick your scapegoat? And who is the we? Is it inclusive or is it exclusionary? So you have in a moment like this, I think one of the opportunities, there, there are enormous threats, needless to say, in Trump. And the biggest threat, I think, is him consolidating a right-wing populism 
that could be very long-term and shape politics in the United States for decades to come, let alone the world stage. Um, and I think that that threat is very real. I lose sleep over it. I think I, I, it floors me that people are still underestimating this man. Um, it's tempting because he seems like a, a, you know, he seems like a bumbling fool and unhinged. Uh, but he understands intuitively and theoretically populism, and he understands it much better than the leadership of the Democratic Party, and it makes up for all his faults politically. I mean, he's the president, and he's still on a path to consolidate any power. So the dangers are real. The opportunity is that he symbolizes a lot of the worst of the tradition of American politics in terms of misogyny, racism, xenophobia, and like, you know, wealthy people controlling politics. Um, and, you know, kind of referring to the, the chain of equivalences that Chantel talked about um, and that uh, you and Ernesto have written about, um, you have this moment where, you know, in January of 2017, suddenly the airport fight, um, when, the Muslim, when the Muslim ban happens, the airport occupations become this uniting symbol, right? And so, uh, and then another moment after uh, what happened in Charlottesville with the white supremacists, rallies all over the country for racial justice become the symbol. Uh, at other moments, the, the healthcare fight becomes the symbol. So the way that that kind of intersectionality, to use that term, um, is articulated isn't in the way that I think a lot of leftists expect it to be, which is an, an analytical argument about how all our struggles are connected. It's a pedagogical process where one struggle stands in for the, the we that we're articulating. What do you mean when you say that, a pedagogical, pedagogical process? What does that look like? I mean, one day it's rallies at the, at the airport. Another day it's rallies in city square around racial justice. Another moment it's sit-ins on the healthcare fight. And but so the idea is educating folks. The idea is over time, people are building their analysis and building a sense of a frontier of a we, the people, versus um, whatever this threat is. And it's, it's not a matter of like, you know, like only super woke people with a specialized vocabulary coming in the door and having it all figured out, right? Mm -hmm. It's a matter of like what fights we choose, when we choose them, and how we go about uh, doing them. It's an uneven and imperfect process and we're not always in control. Like a lot of those fights I just named were in reaction to things that the, the Trump administration did. And then I would argue then, uh, coming back to some of how you framed the question, that the particular electoral fights um, in the 2018 cycle symbolize that in a different way, right? So Ocasio-Cortez, um, as a young woman of color, working class, uh, embodies um, a lot of these different you know, what might be considered like, you know, identity politics here or, uh, you know, mm. fragmented struggles embodies and, and that together. Too. Embodies and enacts, right? It's yes. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think one thing in this that I want to um, talk about for a second uh, in terms of how this is done by the right, because I think the layers of populism, um, I really agree that populism in its purest form is a rhetorical, like, we the people versus... Uh, the establishment or the elites, like that's the rhetorical structure of it. Um, for us to understand it, we introduce another layer. This is internally in our analysis, and that is like there's like the very top, right? There's the people like 
the Koch brothers and, um, you know, concentrated economic power, billionaires. And then there's this political class under that, that like might be the top 10 to 20% of the economic spectrum. And I think one of the things that right-wing populism does effectively is it punches up at that political class of the liberal section of that political class. Its favorite targets in the United States are Hollywood, the media, academia, right? And the reason it works so well is because economic power feels abstract to a lot of people. It's like the weather. People are resigned to it. But like condescension has a human face and there's a visceral reaction to it. When Hillary Clinton said basket of deplorables, um, me being from a rural area, like my blood boiled at hearing that phrase, right? And people feel condescended to and there's a visceral reaction to it, right? And when you're down here, the political class looks like the top, right? From your perspective down here, even though it's below the real raw economic power. And I think Trump does that very, very well, kind of obfuscates the economic power at the top by, you know, punching relatively up to a working class position at, at, at social elites um, in liberal social elites. And like, to be real, liberals in the United States, at least, play into that image all the time uh, to, to their detriment. Um, so one of the things that uh, I really wanted to draw out was this difference between a populist rhetoric or a populist narrative and way of speaking um, and a populist strategy or mode of governing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you speak to, a huge part of that is about the language we use. And obviously we're here um, as part of the Neon Comms Hub and it's something that mm-hmm. we're working on. So how do you articulate and communicate these kind of populist ideas mm-hmm. effectively? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so I think the first thing to recognize is that a lot of the ways demands have been articulated, this is at least speaking for the context of the United States, a lot of the ways that demands have been articulated over the past 40 years through advocacy advocacy organizations, nonprofits, social movements, et cetera, has often been in a way that is not populist and um, that actually the right has a story for. It's like special interest groups trying to get what they want and trying to like, you know, be bureaucratic and uh, take advantage, right? There's a whole bunch of different narratives for it, but the way that we articulate on the environment in the United States, for example, um, or on a lot of different issues, fall into this story of like, these are liberal, this is a special interest, special group of activists, they're different than us, they're, ev- they're not everyday people, they're people who have too much time on, themsel- on their hands, they're going through a phase in college, uh, whatever it is, right? They're a special group, they're a special interest, and they just have their agenda. And the ways that we present them often play into that narrative. So a lot of the kind of like residue of rhetoric that we, are, that we start with is not populist and is not strategic in terms of the moment. And so we have to recognize that and reframe issues. So in Lancaster Stands Up and the Jess King for Congress campaign, um, both of us, we took pains to avoid what we call left-right polarization. Um, you know, the dominant way that we're told people polarize is left, right, or maybe they identify in the center or increasingly people identify outside of that whole spectrum. When you 
start with words like left, liberal, Democrat, Republican, or start by talking about Trump, or start by talking about hot button issues as they've been popularly defined, like gun control or abortion, right? People know where they stand in relationship to those identities. They're either left, they're right, they identify as a centrist, whatever that is, or they feel alienated from the whole framework. And you can't move people. They're fixed in those positions. But issue by issue and story by story, people are complex. They're kind of all over the place. And there is movement uh, that, that's available. So we do um, what we call a bottom versus top polarization. And we do it with everything. One of the most important ways of doing it in a congressional campaign was Jess King openly critiquing the leadership of her own party, of the Democratic Party. That's how she was able to get so many Republicans, even though we lost the race, she got a tremendous amount of Republicans and independents to cross over because it gives them permission, right? And Trump did that importantly, right? We think of Trump and we think of the Tea Party as conservatives and as the right, but it's very imprecise. This is an extreme faction that ascended to power uh, and the key move, or one of the key moves, they couldn't have ascended to power, in my opinion, without this, was taking on the establishment leadership of the Republican Party in an open, insurgent way. Um, and the Trump uh, volunteers that I interviewed in the summer of 2016, one after another would say some version of the story. They loved watching the show of Trump taking out one coronated uh, candidate after another. You know, taking out uh, Jeb Bush and um, Marco Rubio and all the favorites, right? And then the grand prize was Hillary Clinton, right? So I'm not saying that we should imitate the right in everything we do, but in a moment when people are so upset, a populist moment when people are so upset with the leadership of the country, you have to pick an open fight with the leadership of your own party if you want to win people's trust. That's why we have to pick an open fight with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in, in uh, the United States. It's nothing about their capability as leaders. Um, and it also doesn't mean that the right is not misogynistic in their attacks and that we shouldn't push back on that. But we have to pick an open fight with the people who symbolize leadership in our party. So that's part of it. But then just to, to get specific for a second, issues like gun control, right? We don't use the phrase gun control. We don't use the terminology that has pigeonholed people into different positions. We talk about the firearms manufacturer lobby that donated $221,736 to Lloyd Smucker, who is my cousin who ran against uh, uh, Jess King, um, and, and how that is corroding our politics, right? And so we reframe it and get a lot of people who you know, might have been you know, Second Amendment gun rights voters to be like, well, yeah, I'm for, I'm for being able to have a gun, but that's screwed up. That's part of the story that everybody resonates with, almost everybody, like most Republicans and Democrats that we talk to, resonate with this story that big money has corroded our political system, right? So we tell that story and we retell other stories like the story of gun violence through why is inaction happening on, on this? It's because the firearms manufacturer lobby, we say that instead of calling them the NRA, right? Um, is is um, uh, is buying our political system. So it's, it's to be frank, it's an exhausting process because you're constantly telling new stories that aren't in people's vocabulary 
and people keep wanting to put you in a box and it's tempting to try to accommodate that socially to be like, oh yeah, well, yeah, we're the people who are for gun control or yeah, we're the people who are, yeah, we're like people ask us at the door, are you the Democrats? And it's tempting to be like, yeah, sure, right? But we constantly and we train all our folks to be like, no, we're an independent organization. We're not happy with either party and here's what we're about. It's exhausting, but over time it's working and it, it, it reframes things. Um, one last point on this, it's a constant fight in that the Lloyd Smucker campaign kept trying and with some success to reframe in left versus right uh, polarization because they had 100,000 more registered Republicans in our district than there were Democrats. So it was to his advantage. And so we kept persuading Republicans and then coming back to the door and they would be repolarized because of the Kavanaugh hearings or because of the, the, the caravan. And so it's a long game work to be reframing that and it's a relational process um, that you have to be in um, to, to, to do it. It's not just about having like the right narrative and the right message, it's how narrative and ground game are integrated uh, into each other. Mm. Um. Yeah, so I think, I think what I'm hearing is you, it's a kind of concerted strategic effort to shift from this kind of left-right paradigm that you've inherited or that you're working in to kind of a, this populist bottom-up. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of it spins on the axis while you're still trying to navigate this axis, which very much, much exists. Um, one question I wanted to ask you, Chantal, which, because it's, it seems a lot like what Jonathan is talking about, for me at least, is about emotion, how we kind of connect these things. Um, you know, Pablo Iglesias says, you, you, you become successful when your message intersects with their reality. Mm. Um, and that's deeply emotional, you know. And so something that I think comes up a lot uh, in the conversation around left populism is this idea of nationalism, or at least the national identity, or the national dimension, um, and how that ties to people's kind of emotional identities. And so I think, yeah, I, I was hoping you could speak to the question of the em emotive experience of national identity and how that exists mm. in a populist uh, agenda. Yeah, but I would like to, to pose the, oh, this yeah, question in a much more general way because it's interesting that you asked that because precisely I wanted to uh, uh, um, jump and add something to uh, what uh, uh, Jonathan had said because I think what's important there is he showed us that we've got to speak with people where they are. Mm -hmm. You know, when you say it's not to have the right, the right narrative and you are going to come and to say, ah, oh, but you know, you exploited the problem, anti-capitalism. I mean, that's not, does not work. People don't feel for them capitalism is something very abstract. We need to, to, to speak to them uh, the problem that they have, you know, and, and, and this is why I think that the, the uh, this is something uh, is, uh, I've always, in all my work, very much insisted. You know, the, what I, the, role, the uh, role of what I call affect in politics. Mm -hmm. What makes people act politically is because there, there, there is some kind of affect which are moved. And of course, in the field of politics, uh, what is important is what uh, is. I, I don't like this uh, insistence, which is no oh, emotion. You know, emotion. And in fact, usually it's used in a way which is negative. You know, the emotion irrational. I think, and and on the basis of that, they want to. And I think it's a big problem with the left to eliminate the affective dimension from politics. You know, say no, no, no. On the left, we only are going to use rational arguments, and it's only the right that that use those. The, 
because they, they think, oh yeah, emotion and then uh, irrationality. I prefer, and I'm <laughs> apropos to speak of what I call the role of what I call passion in politics. By passion, I refer to collective affects, the, the affect that make people, you know, uh, crystallize in, into a us, what makes them act together, because I, I, that's also something I've always insisted. In the field of politics, we are always dealing with collective identities. You know, when you are in politics, you are not, of course, it's an individual job, but as part of something bigger, you know, and, and that this something bigger can be the nation, and, and, and I think that uh, it's very important to acknowledge that one of the important effects is the effect, the nation, national effect, and, and it's very wrong to believe that necessarily did this lead to xenophobic and, and uh, nationalistic view. I mean, for instance, I think, and I've always insisted the difference between some kind of nationalism, uh, and by the way, some, some, there are some nationalism which are, uh, can be progressive. I, I don't know, may, maybe some people would not agree with me uh, here, but I think, for instance, that Scottish nationalism, I see it as very progressive. Uh, um, and uh, so there are, some nationalism can be, the, you know, in, in our, I mean, for instance, and again, I might make myself some enemies here, I don't think that Catalan nationalism is progressive, because in that case, it's basically something, uh, the rich part of the country that believe, why do we have to subsidize, you know, those people? Uh, uh, I think that, uh, that's my personal opinion, you know, some, so it, but it shows that nationalism can, can be uh, progressive or not. But also, and, and I, want that, I prefer, in fact, to insist on the role of patriotism, because I, and, and I've always defended very much the idea of what I call a left patriotism, because this is a way in which you can articulate the, the, what is you know, the relation with the nation, to the, which I think is, um, in general, um, of course, they are you know, people who are those kind of cosmopolitan, but basically, I think for people, the, the, the belonging you know, is very important. And of course, the, the whole question is how you are going to articulate that. It can be done in a way which is exclusionary, but not necessarily. You know, it can be, for, and, and by the way, from that point of view, I think that we must recognize that the French have got a big advantage because they can make reference to the French Revolution, which was something very progressive. So they can have a narrative, and uh, uh, they call it a, 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 le roman national, which of course, you know, this is a very interesting uh, um, domain because at the moment in France we've got the, the, on one side Marine Le Pen which is trying to create this narrative, national narrative in a right-wing way and Jean-Luc Mélenchon trying to do it in a left-wing way. And, and they've got a fight for internal about Jeanne d'Arc, you know. Is, is, should Jeanne d'Arc be seen as some kind of very progressive or, or the contrary uh, uh, reactionary and representing? So, but I think that this is a terrain that one cannot leave to, to right-wing populism. You know, and that's something that, unfortunately, the, the, the left does not recognize. So, in, uh, again, to come back to the, the, what uh, Jonathan was saying, yeah, we need to, to really speak with the people, try to understand what are their concerns, and not to come with, uh, we know, you know. We, we, and if you don't feel like it's because you've got a false consciousness, and we are going to bring you through consciousness. I don't think it's, it, it, it's like that, and in fact, of course, it means, uh, but here I don't want to enter and make you some kind of philosophical uh, uh, discourse. Uh, it, you, we need to understand that identities are always the product of, of discursive uh, construction. You know, they, they are not uh, something that necessarily. They, 
I, I think the idea of objective interest is something very problematic, very problematic, because object, uh, interests are always construction. And, you, and this is why, for instance, and I think that's something very uh, important in the struggle uh, between right-wing populism and left populism, this is how we can transform and bring, for instance, uh, people who were identified with right-wing populism to shift and become uh, 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 really identified with a form of um, expansive uh, inclusionary populism. In fact, that has happened in France in the last election, uh, because where uh, in two main places, for instance, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon in Marseille and François Ruffin in Amiens, they were elected uh, MPs in areas which were mainly uh, at ver very uh, clearly voted for before for Marine Le Pen. And people who had voted for Marine Le Pen, you know, were won over by those because, and I, I, I give you uh, very quickly um, the, the way in which uh, they are, it's, it's always speaking with people who feel that they've been abandoned by the Socialist Party, you know. And, and then, and in, in, in many places, Marine Le Pen was the only one who was going to speak with those people uh, um, and say, yeah, you know, I understand your problem, but you see, uh, if you're, it's because of the immigrants. The immigrants are the ones who are taking. And of course, if the only discourse available is that one, they, they really be, construct their identity on that. But what both Melanchon and, and Ruffin have done is go to, to say people and really speaking with them, trying to understand what, to uh, 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 bring them to see that uh, the problem were not coming from the immigrants, but from, for instance, the, the, well, in the case of uh, uh, Ruffin, in, in uh, Bernard Arnault and, and big, you know, capitalism, transnational corporation. So identities can be transformed. Mm. And I think that's a very important field. Uh, but you need to speak with people really mobilizing their, 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 their affect, uh, speaking in terms in which, you know, the, seeing their problem and, and the way in, in, in which you can you know, make, make them act politically, not, not with the discourse of saying, you know, this is um, exactly the old things. Are. No, I, I think that's a very big uh, uh, limitation for many left people, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think most of us would probably, be, probably agree that it's, a, it's a, a problem that exists here in the UK, is that uh, uh, often the way that we try to articulate our demands and the things that we're asking for are very instrumental, very dry, you know, mm -hmm. the 3% kind of thing, um, which, as you say, doesn't speak to people where they are. But one thing I just wanted to lift up was, I feel like what we're not saying here is that a kind of left populist uh, narrative um, is is kind of devoid of strategy or ideology in that you just meet people where they are because we're also trying to move them, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like what we're also naming in that is that that, that is, one t is one kind of strategy or, or tactic of, of moving people, um, but one that just starts by meeting them where they are. Right. Um, so I wanted to offer you to speak to that if you wanted, but th the last question just before we opened up was this one about, um, again, about tactics mm -hmm. and whether you think that we need to deploy different tactics in cities, which are often more progressive and diverse, um, stereotypically, um, than we do in the countryside and rural places. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in some of those places, are, is there sometimes more of a need for compromise? First of all, just compromise, like to me, compromise is not a dirty word when you have political power, like in the process of you wielding power and then working out the details, compromise happens and that's inevitable. Starting from your compromise position and starting with 
like, oh, we're afraid to pick bold fights because the other side is strong here. That's that's like uh, throwing in the towel before you start, and that's that's different, and that's like that's what a lot of people mean by compromise too. Um, so I think you know I don't want to get into the specifics of the difference between rural and urban approaches, but like if you like Google Ocasio's ads and you Google Jess King's ads, um, it's interesting to watch them back to back because Jess King is in this rural area, Ocasio is in this urban progressive area, and Yet, and their ads are very different, though their vernacular is very different, and yet there are these things that they share in common in terms of the fight they're picking, um, bottom versus top, everyday people who have been left behind versus an establishment that's not listening. Um, and I think you, f- you pick bold fights everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. right? So you know, people bemoan the, the polarization, the left-right polarization, everything's so polarized. The wrong answer to that is um, to stop polarizing. <laughs> you need a different polarization. One that is strategic because it frames a supermajority versus the few that are dividing us over our beautiful differences for their own gain, right? Um, so the mistake is to try to stop picking fights in order to make some kind of peace because peace in that context is a defense of the status quo. I think in terms of meeting people where they're at, it's just like, it's a no brainer. Most people identify with the nation state that they're in. And if you don't meet them with that, you're just, you're, you're, you're giving up. And it's complicated, right? That, like, patriotism is understandably a very complicated subject for the left, especially when you live in a country like the United States or any country that has an imperial history or present, right? Um, it is a complex thing to identify. And just the history of a country where slavery and genocide are such pillars of the economic and political foundations of the country. But what we have chosen to do is to identify with these three words in in the country's founding documents, we the people, and to identify with the fight for those three words to not just mean white male property owners, but to mean every group that has fought to be part of that we the people, to have equality, to have a voice in that polity, right? That history of struggle is just as much a part of the history of the United States as the history of genocide and slavery, right? So we are choosing to identify with the best protagonist in our country's history, right? And it's just a no-brainer. We have to do that. Um, I think I agree completely with Chantel that politics is not about you as an individual. It's about the we. It's about the collective. And one of the biggest mistakes of the Democratic Party in the United States, message-wise, is their framing is like, what's in it for you? And they, they frame things to individuals. And then the candidates like John Kerry and Hillary Clinton use I pronouns all the time instead of we pronouns, right? They don't get it because they're, they're in culture, they're, they're, they're a product of neoliberalism and the individualism that comes with it. And they think it's just like politics is like a rational uh, choice about like cost-benefit analysis. Um, and what we have to do is appeal to the we's that people already identify with. And for better or for worse, the national identity is the largest we that is potent to most people. 
the largest expansion of their experience within groups, the sense of solidarity and belonging and longing for community that people have as part of their psyche. The nation is the biggest group of people that people project that sense onto, that imagined community. And if you just say nationalism is screwed up and we're not gonna go there, you're, you're not allowing yourself to transform that, right? And, um, and so that's a really important part of meeting people where they're at. It's meeting them in their current identities. And when, when immigrant rights uh, rallies march with the American flag, it means something different than when Trump uses that flag. It's contesting uh, not just the use of the flag, but who gets to use it, who's part of America, what is America's future, right? And that is a powerful contest. Um, and it's suicidal not to engage in it. The last thing I want to say about tactics, which was part of your question, <coughs> I don't want to get, I think tactics are the thing that we should be the most flexible about, right? Like there's our vision, there's our strategy, and tactics like we shouldn't get hung up on any of them. That said, uh, in the US context at least, the tactic of going door to door, of having conversations with our neighbors is the most important tactic that we have right now. Um, and it's important for a couple of reasons. It orients us, one, it gets us a lot of information. It transforms people. Otherwise, a lot of our people in our district are getting their news from Fox News, right? That's what's making meaning. But we can transform that by having conversations that people remember at the door. It can pierce through that narrative. And then the most important thing with it that I've seen with our base is that uh, we are oriented toward the periphery of our group, right? So when we have town hall meetings, we're oriented toward the person who walked into the door for the first time. What is their experience like? Is somebody welcoming them? And the same thing applies to the door, right? That there's a temptation in activist groups to be oriented toward the very important people in the room, right? Toward the center of the group. And it makes us stupid. It makes us like, have the wrong reference points. And it makes us, it's, it, 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 it's the social psychological mechanism that makes groups insular, is we try to elbow our way into the center of the group. And we actually have to train our leaders to be oriented toward the periphery, to like the, the hardcore thing to do is to go knock on 50 doors today and meet people who you don't know how to talk to, maybe be bad at it at first and to learn how to be good at it. Um, that orientation for leaders to be oriented toward the base that we have to be bringing in instead of toward the center of the group, I think is the thing that has made us the most populist and the most effective in Pennsylvania over the past two years, that single mechanism. Not to put everything on a tactic, but that mechanism is much more important as a learning process than like us hitting any one particular you know, golden message at any point. Awesome. I know you could say a lot more about the insularity question, so I'd recommend that people who are interested in that um, and have ever been in an activist space that feels like that to grab Jonathan afterwards, because he's got all the answers. Um, who has a question? Um, so my question is, you talked about meeting people where they are. How do you combine this with uh, avoid alienating the most radical groups? And how do you keep, how do you move to uh, the next step, so moving people along, as we said, without losing them. Thank you. And one more? Um, yeah, so I think it is important, like you said, and I really see the value of drawing a line between the people and then like the elite and the few people in power. 
Um, there's also some things in a lot of recent reframing research to suggest that holding the people in power up as a villain can kind of entrench fatalism in people and make them feel like there's no way out of that. I want to know what are your suggestions for how to kind of diffuse that, because I think the first thing is still really important, but fatalism is like a terrible thing that kills everyone's will to act. Okay, uh, Jonathan, do you want to go first? So I'll start with the fatalism one. I do think fatalism is a very tricky thing to overcome. Uh, I think a lot of times when we encounter apathy, we what's really behind it is resignation, a sense that nothing can happen. Because the best like kind of front for resignation is apathy. Like, don't care, pretend you don't care, because that's easier to deal with than admitting that you feel entirely powerless. So, you know, we've trained a lot of our volunteers to um, to recognize the apathy and like disinterest in politics. I don't care about politics or like both parties suck, right? That type of thing to recognize that as an opening, um, not the end of the conversation. Um, and it's tricky. I mean, there's we train people that the right amount of anger against the establishment can ignite that. You know, so not to be a part, not to like, we do not, what doesn't work is like, no, like you should care. Or like, no, like the Democratic Party is so much better than the Republican Party. You should like, come on, I mean, they're good. And no, like you've got to meet the like, the, the apathy with your own anger of like, you know what, like don't get me started. When the financial crisis happened, my mom lost her retirement. She now makes barely above minimum wage and has no retirement in sight. I'm pissed off. No one was held accountable. I was registered as an independent for years because I was so pissed off at both parties. And now I'm registered as a Democrat because I wanted to vote in the primary to contest what these jokers do because they're not going to change unless people like you and me make them change, right? That I'm so moved. That, I want to do it. <laughs> Versions, versions of that story like are working for people and your own sense of anger, not unhinged anger, but like determined anger and putting yourself in it, right, can reach other people and get that sense of hope. You know, the trick is to tell people love underdogs, but only underdogs who can win. And that's like this, it's this like contra, it's this like needle to thread, right? Like the best campaigns are campaigns of underdogs who maybe can win right, that are worth taking a risk on. And that's like the trick of a campaign uh, to me. Um, and then the last thing I wanna say is, uh, I think the left too often just names culprits, right? Like these people did it. And we actually have to point to the top for culprits, but point to our base as the people who are responsible for stepping up and changing it, right? That's what the best leaders, that's what Martin Luther King did, that's what Gandhi did, that's what like a lot of social movement leaders have did. And if you watch Trump's final ads, that's what he does too. He says, it's up to you and me, it's up to us to make America great again, right? So culpability at the top, the political establishment, responsibility for changing it. That's inspiring to people, it's motivating, and it, it frames this we. Um, the avoiding the alienating the most radical people who are already radical i have to admit honestly i have come to care less and less about that with every passing year just to be frank um frankly if the people who are radical don't have a social base that's sizable i don't care about them um uh and one of the most refreshing things to me in moving back home and organizing is that the experience of pulling 
hundreds, thousands now of people who weren't involved in politics into a political vehicle where they have a sense of agency. Once I'm doing that, it's the only thing I care about. And I could give two f**ks, pardon my language, about whether like my super woke friends retweet my stuff or like it on Facebook. It's not my point of reference anymore. Right? My point of reference is onboarding people who haven't been everyday working people. And if radical people get the memo and shift and be part of that relevant piece, great. And if not, great, have your book club. And, um, <laughs> and, and you know what? I'll, Damn. I'll, I'll, like, I'll have coffee with you. I'll, I'll like have a fire with you. I'll play music. We'll have fun. But, like, I, but I'm not taking you seriously politically, right? Um, so that's, that's like my, um, um, and I mean, you can see though in, in my book, I, like my book is wrestling with that question, like of how do we, like my book is to bring my beloved radical friends like into relevancy, like, and it's my own journey to do that myself. So it's self-reflective. Um, so I do care about that, but like it's liberating to care less and less about it. Wow, such a great mic drop. Well done. <laughs> Um, okay, Chantal. I think that your question about the, the villain, I mean, I am totally against the idea of constructing the, this frontier in moral terms. You know, left populism doesn't say that there is the good people and there are those villains. You know, this is not, we need to, it's their relation of power. We need to construct the frontier in a political way to realize that it's a question of a system of economic system, a system of power. That, that, that's what was stake. So what needs, not a question of individuals, you know, it's a question of the system. This is what needs to be transformed. So I completely refuse to construct the frontier in moral terms, you know, the, the good and the villain. So for me, that's, in fact, constructing that way is precisely to, to, to accept, you know, the, the, the way in which the, the, the people who defend the establishment are trying to denigrate populism. Oh, look, they, they, they are really uh, think, thinking in terms of we are the good and, 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 they are, and they are the villain. So, in fact, this allowed them also to present, I know we, we are the, the good ones and the populists are the villains. So we can't f uh, fall into that trap, honestly. <laughs> I'm knackered. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, of course, I'm sure we could all sit here and talk about this all night, it's been, but it's been a long day, I'm sure, for everyone. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for coming, and I really hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the podcast. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you in the new year for a brand new series.